0: A number of you probably read this book years ago. It's called The Purpose Driven Life. Next to the Bible, it has been the best selling hardback book ever in the history of mankind. It has sold 35 million copies. Now, I want you to think about that. If Rick Warren made just a dollar off of each sale, he'd be obviously very, very wealthy. And he is because he has written the book. Well, another book came out that didn't do as well, and it's called The Prayer-Driven Life. And we can understand why, because prayer, even though it's talked about as Christians, we all struggle with having a prayer-driven life. And that's what we want to talk about this morning. So turn to James chapter 5. James chapter 5, we want to specifically look at verses 13 through 20 as we conclude our study of the book of James. This has been a book of wisdom, as John has said. And James is going to conclude this section in talking about prayer. Listen to what Oswald Chambers says about prayer, and I think it's very instructive for us. We tend to use prayer as a last resort, but God wants it to be our first line of defense. We pray when there's nothing else we can do, but God wants us to pray before anything at all, end quote. We would agree with him, but in practicality, many of us struggle with prayer because prayer is hard work. On the one hand, it does come natural because we're born again. We are now in connection with God, and so it does come natural just like breathing, but we also know that prayer is hard work now, the Bible talks about two times that we should pray. First of all, there are set times of prayer. You could read about this in Mark chapter 1. It says Jesus got up early in the morning, and before he dealt with all the crowds, he got alone with the Father. And then secondly, we would also, all of us understand this one, and this is spontaneous times of praying. 1 Thessalonians 5 says to pray without ceasing. In other words, throughout your day, you are to pray The word is used of a hacking cough, and we all know what that is. It means that we cough throughout the day, and that's how we are to express ourselves in prayer. Now, for all of us here, I would venture to say that most of us don't struggle with spontaneous praying. What we all struggle with is those set times of prayer where we get alone with the Father and we spend time in worship and petition and all the things that are involved in prayer. That's typically what we struggle with. And most of us don't have those set times of prayer, I think, for three reasons. Number one is busyness, then we would say laziness, and then worldliness. Those are the three reasons why most of us struggle with having set times of prayer. We're either too busy, sometimes doing the work of the Lord, We're either lazy, it's so much easier to take your remote and turn on the television or to get on social media for hours rather than it is to pray, or we get worldly. What happens is the world pulls us, sin enters into our life, and we don't want to pray. Why? Because we get convicted. So the question I want to ask and answer this morning is, how can you and I be prayer-driven Christians? Some of us struggle with this more than others But we all need to be prayer-driven Christians. And listen, if we are not praying Christians corporately and individually, we're going to lack power in our life. Well, let me give you a list of things here in this passage that will help us to be prayer-driven Christians. First of all, pray when you're suffering. James says to pray when you are suffering. Notice what he says in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Now, obviously, he was writing to a group of Christians that were poor, that had been dispossessed from their homes, they had been scattered. Many of them were being persecuted by the rich, many of them were being dragged to court. And so, if any of you is suffering, James says you must pray. And so, when you and I are going through a difficult time in our life, when we're hurting, when we're dealing with problems, the first response is we're to go to the Lord in prayer. And what I have found is that many times when we are suffering, when we are hurting, we typically are driven to our knees. That's why God often allows suffering in our life, because He knows that it will drive us to dependency upon Him. Now, when you pray when you're going through a difficult time in your life, typically I pray for two things, God, get me out of this situation, or Give me strength in the midst of this situation. God will do one or the other. There's nothing wrong with asking Him to rescue you from your difficult situation. Now, if you brought the trial on yourself, God may not rescue you out of it, but you could always ask. But He will either get you out of it, or He will strengthen you in the midst of it. And so if you're hurting this morning, you're going through a difficulty, God wants you to spend time seeking Him. Not just saying, Lord, get me out of this, and you offer up a quick prayer, and that's the extent of your prayer life. No. God wants to drive you to your needs. My dad recently was diagnosed with Parkinson's, and we've noticed in the last three or four months he's really taken a nosedive physically. They put him on medication because the dopamine in his brain is very low, and last Sunday I called him on the phone. My mom said he had been sleeping all day during Father's Day. And I remember calling him, talking to him on the phone, and I started to cry because I realized that he wasn't doing good. And when I hung up the phone, Laura and I began to pray because I was hurting. And those of you who have parents who are sick, maybe they've already passed on, you remember that experience of walking with your parents through some physical difficulty or some mental difficulty, whatever it is. When you're hurting, James says, if you want to be a prayer-driven Christian, pray when you're suffering. Secondly, pray when you are sick. He says in verse 14, "'Is any among you sick?' "'Then he must call for the elders of the church, "'and they are to pray over him, "'anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, "'and the prayer offered in faith "'will restore the one who is sick,' and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. A second way to be prayer-driven is when we are going through sickness, we need to request prayer from the elders of the church. Notice you are to take the initiative because sometimes the leadership, which is called elders, do not know that you are sick. Now, here's the question, who are the sick here? Traditionally, we have interpreted this to mean someone who is physically sick. And there are two interpretations. I'm going to apply both of them because I think both are valid. First of all, the sick person here is referring to someone who is spiritually or emotionally sick. The Greek word that's used here is used 50% of the time in the New Testament to refer to somebody who's beaten down spiritually and emotionally. And that would fit the context of the people to whom James was writing to because they were beleaguered, they were beaten up by the rich, their wages were not being paid in chapter five, and many of them were suffering emotionally, they were depleted, and they were at the end of their rope spiritually. And so James says, if you are sick spiritually, and you're struggling with spiritual motivation, and you feel broken down, and you wanna throw in the towel spiritually, he says, call the elders of the church, if there's sin involved, confess your sins, and God will forgive you, and the elders are to anoint you with oil. You say, well, what's the oil for there? Well, you have to understand, in ancient times, oil was a form of primitive medicine. And so James is saying, if you're spiritually sick, the elders will pray for you, and they will rub oil on you. If you want an example of this, read Luke chapter 10. Do You remember the Good Samaritan? What did he do to that man that was beaten up physically? He rubbed oil on him. In fact, we can make an inference from this that if you are spiritually sick, you need to what? Go to the elders, ask them to pray for you, and as we're going to see later, go to the doctor, because, med- because oil in that day was a primitive form of medicine. And so the first group of the sick are those who are spiritually beat up. Then the second group of the sick would be those who are physically ill, and this is how this passage is traditionally interpreted. And 50% of the time, the Greek word here is used of those who are physically sick. They have cancer, they have some type of disease. If you're physically sick, call the elders of the church. If there is sin involved, and by the way, sickness is not always the result of sin, but if it is linked and there's sin involved, he says, confess it to the elders, you will be forgiven, and they will anoint you with oil. Now, what's the anointing there if a person's physically sick? Well, there, it's not medicinally. They're not rubbing it on you as medicine. Rather, it's put on you symbolically. In other words, the, the oil represents the Holy Spirit. So when they anoint you with oil, that's a symbol of the Holy Spirit's healing ministry in your life. And he says, call the elders of the church and have them pray for you. And notice in both cases, the sick person will be made well. In other words, God will strengthen you if you're at the end of your rope, you're broken emotionally, you're broken spiritually, you want to throw in the towel, God will give you strength or you will be healed physically. Now, this raises a question, why aren't all people healed physically who have elders pray over them? And you and I know that not everyone gets healed. The Bible says we must ask according to God's will, and if we pray according to His will, He will answer our prayers. I knew a guy back in Miami, Florida, he had this cancer lump on his neck. He went to the elders of the church, We prayed over him, we anointed him with oil, and God removed the cancer from his neck. When he got the MRI done, it was totally gone. God does heal today. And we ought to come in faith, and we ought to ask God to heal us physically. So if you're going through sickness, one of the ways that you can be prayer driven is if you're struggling emotionally, spiritually, you're beat up, and you feel like you're going to throw in the towel, call one of the elders of the church, or a group of elders, and have them pray for you. Now today we don't anoint with oil medicinally because we're not a primitive culture anymore. But have them pray for you to give you strength. I knew of a pastor one time. He was counseling this young man, and this young man was beat up spiritually, and he wanted to throw in the towel because he was struggling with lust and pornography, and he didn't want to do it. And he said, well, I'll pray for you, this pastor did. And he said, let's get on our knees and pray. And so this pastor got on his knees, and he said, when he got on his knees, he said, the young man laid across the pastor's back. The pastor wasn't expecting that. But it was a gesture communicating that I'm depending on your prayer and your strength to help me during this difficult time. So whether you're sick physically, whether you're sick spiritually, either way, if you want to be prayer-driven... Call the elders of the church and have them pray for you. There's a third way that you and I can be prayer-driven, and that is this. Pray, when you, pray by praising God. Pray by praising God. Notice what he says in verse 13. Is anyone cheerful? You may not be sick. You may not be going through a difficult time. If you are doing well in your life and you are cheerful and you are happy, You are to sing songs of praise. Notice here, he doesn't say feel guilty. He says praise God. Now, you got to understand that praise is a form of prayer. We often think of prayer as simply talking to God and asking for things. But do you realize that praise is a form of prayer? And so if you're going through good circumstances in your life and you're not suffering, the Bible says you need to offer up thanksgiving and praise to God. Why? Because our tendency is when things are going good in our life, what do we do? We tend not to praise God, we tend not to pray, and we tend to forget God. And so if things are going well in your life, offer up the sacrifice of praise to God. Verbally praise Him while you're in your car. Put on some Christian music and begin to thank Him. Spontaneously do it when you're at work. You see, that is a form of prayer, praising God. We do it through music. We do it through verbally praising God. There was a preacher who wanted to train his horse to be a biblical horse. And so what he did was he would use commands that were biblical in order to train his horse. And one of the commands that he used to get his horse to go was when he said, praise the Lord, the horse would take off. And when he would say, hallelujah, the horse would stop. So one day he got on his horse and he was riding out in the open country, and all of a sudden a jackrabbit came out of nowhere. And the horse took off in fear. Well, he was panicking, but the problem was he forgot the phrase to get the horse to stop. And so he was saying, In Jesus' name, but the horse kept going. And he would utter other words because he couldn't remember the word to get the horse to stop. Well, he was heading towards a cliff and he was panicking. Finally, when he got right near the cliff, he remembered the word hallelujah. He said, hallelujah, and the horse stopped dead in his tracks. He looked over the cliff, and he went, whew, praise the Lord. (laughs) How about you? Are you praising the Lord? There's a fourth way that you and I can be prayer-driven, and that is this. Pray by trusting God. Pray by trusting God. Notice, if you will, verses 14 and 15. He says, is any among you sick? either spiritually or physically, then he must call for the elders of the church and they will pray over him, anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And that oil, again, is either symbolic or it's medicinal. And notice what it says in verse 15. And the prayer offered in what? Faith. Now, that's either the faith of the elders or it's the faith of the sick person. Obviously, you want it to be both. And notice what happens. It says it will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. But what I want you to see here is the prayer offered in what? Faith. In other words, if you want to be a prayer-driven Christian, one of the things you must operate on is faith. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11 that faith moves mountains. And we all struggle with faith at times when we pray. Sometimes we stand on the Word of God, and we believe that God will take care of our needs according to His riches and glory, and we have faith. Other times, there is the swaying battle of faith. We trust God, then we don't trust God. We trust Him, but we say, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. We all struggle with faith at times. You see, when you and I come to the Lord in prayer, he wants us to trust him. Why? Because Hebrews chapter 11 says, and without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Now, here's what's great about God. God often will answer our prayer, even at times when we lack faith. You know why? Because he's a merciful God, and God often teaches us through our unbelief. And if you want to increase your faith, as the disciples said in Luke chapter 17, they said, Jesus, increase our faith, you got to be in the word of God, because faith comes by hearing, Romans 10 says, and hearing a word from Christ. you got to be centered in the word of God. And furthermore, you cannot focus on your circumstances. When Peter kept his eyes on Jesus, he was able to walk on the water, But as soon as Peter looked at his circumstances, he looked at the raging waters around him, his faith began to nosedive, and he sunk. And that's what often happens to us. We live by our five senses rather than trust God. Faith is taking God at his word. I'm reminded of this nun who was making her visits to a number of these homes to care for people and administer prayer to them. And on her way, she ran out of gas. Thankfully, it was right near a gas station, so she got out of her car, she went up to the gas station attendant, she said, look, I ran out of gas, do you have a container I can put a little gas in so that I can fill my car and then come to the gas station and fill up. He said, ma'am, I'm sorry, we don't have a gas container, it's already been doled out, but if you wait a little bit, it'll come back. Well, being resourceful, she didn't want to wait. So she goes back to her car and she's trying to look for something to put gas in, and she finds a bedpan. So she takes it to the gas station, she puts some gas in there, and then she goes to her car and she begins to put it in the gas tank. Two men walk by and they said, Now that is faith. (laughs) You see, faith is what God wants us to have when we pray. There's a fifth thing that you and I can do if we're going to be prayer-driven Christians, and that is pray by confessing your sins. Pray by confessing your sins. Notice what it says in verses 14 and 15. It says, "...as any among you sick, he must call the elders of the church, and they are to pray for him, anointing him with oil, in the name of the Lord, and the prayer offered in faith." Will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And I want you to notice what he says here. And if he or she has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Now, not everybody that is sick emotionally, spiritually, or physically is because of sin in their life. But sometimes there is a link. And notice here it says if they've committed sins, if that is the root of the problem, they will be forgiven. Now what's implied in this? Confession of sin. Even though it's not stated there, that's implicitly stated. Why? Because you and I cannot be forgiven of our sins if we don't confess. What does 1 John chapter 1 verse 9 say? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you want to be a prayer-driven Christian, you need to be dealing with sin in your life On a regular basis. I think this is Christianity 101. Most of us know this, that we need to keep a short account of sins. The word confess literally means to say the same thing that God says about your sin. In other words, when you confess your sins, you're saying, God, I agree with you that I shouldn't have thought that. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have tweeted that. Lord, I shouldn't have had that attitude. That's confession, And we need to keep a short account. Every morning when I get up and I do my devotions, I do inventory in my life. And there are many times where I say, Lord, I shouldn't have said that, forgive me. Lord, I shouldn't have done that. And inherent within the word confession is repentance. We often leave that out. Confession and repentance are two sides of the same coin. They're twin sisters. Confession, you agree with God about what you did is wrong. Repentance means you turn from it. Years ago, Laura and I were at a conference in Orlando, and we went out to eat after the conference, and we weren't sure what direction we were going in. And Laura said to me, we need to go on this side or or this direction on the expressway. And I was kind of hesitant. I wasn't sure, but I wanted to defer to her wisdom. So we started to drive, and we must have driven three, four miles only to realize that we were going in the wrong direction. You ever had that argument in the car? If you're married, you understand that. Usually, keep your mouth shut, man. Say, dear, it's okay. I love you anyway, because I make mistakes too. Well, you know what we did? We got off at one of the exits. That's confession. And then I went over the expressway or that little bridge, and then I went in the opposite direction to put us where we needed to go. That's repentance. See, confession is getting off of the exit. Repentance is going in the opposite direction. Too many of us say, Lord, forgive me for that pornography. But you know what we do? We don't block what's on our computer. Lord, forgive me for doing this, and we don't deal with the root of the problem. If you and I want to be prayer-driven Christians, we got to be people of confession. Now listen, God has already forgiven me of all my sins. The reason I confess and repent is to keep my intimacy with God. It is spiritual liquid draino. Because what happens when I sin on a regular basis, it clogs up my spiritual pipes, and I need to confess, and I need to repent. Well, there's a sixth way that you and I can be prayer-driven Christians, and that is this. Pray by interceding for other people. Pray by interceding for other people. Notice what he says in verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. In other words, if you go to the elders because you're spiritually sick, you're physically sick, and if there's sins involved and you confess it to the elders, they pray for you and you're healed, he takes it beyond the elders and he basically says, we ought to be doing this as a church. We ought to be extending this to the body of Christ. This isn't just the responsibility of leadership. It is the responsibility of the church to confess our sins to one another, and then look what he says in verse 16, and pray for one another that you may be healed. In other words, this is preventative maintenance. Don't just wait until you're in a crisis situation. Now, obviously, we want you to come to the leadership of the church if you're going through something that's heavy, if you're physically sick. But don't wait till the crisis comes. What James here is extending is preventative maintenance, body life ministry. He says, we shouldn't just confess our sins to the leadership and ask for prayer from the leadership. We ought to be doing this for one another on a regular basis, praying for one another and confessing our sins to one another. Why? because there's psychological, spiritual, emotional, and yes, even physical healing when we have people that we can trust, that we can share our burdens and our struggles with, who will not judge us and will pray for us and we pray for them. Unfortunately, in the church today, often we don't have people that we can confess our sins to and pray for one another. Why? Because as American Christians, we're very independent. We want to come to church... Hear a sermon, say a few songs, give in the offering plate, go home, and we don't want to be involved in people's lives. But see, this passage encourages body life. We need to be involved with one another. Now, you're not going to air out your dirty laundry to everybody. You're not going to confess your sins to everybody. But you ought to have people that you can share your struggles with. Sometimes little things, sometimes major things, because we all blow it. Like this week, I was uh, debating somebody on um, Fox News. I like to get on, look at articles, and listen, I get so many opportunities to share the gospel message. Every week, I'm sharing with atheists, I'm sharing with people that believe in God, but they're not saved. Well, I got in this uh, kind of friendly debate with one guy, and his name I won't tell you what his name was, but it was a very funny, interesting name. And what I did at the end of the article or the end of my discussion with him, I used his name as a pun. And I knew I shouldn't have done it. I said, you know what? I shouldn't do it. It wasn't profanity or anything, but I used it as a pun. And I thought, I shouldn't have done that. So a buddy of mine back in Jersey, we were texting each other and uh, we were talking about how sometimes, and John shared this with you several weeks ago, when you get in discussions on the internet with people, you have to watch yourself. You have to make sure that you are Christ-like. Yes, you can debate ideas, but make sure you are winsome in your approach. And I told him, man, I blew it this week. I used this guy's name as a pun. He said, you know what? That's why we need Christ every day. And we pray for one another. Do you have somebody that you can pray with on a regular basis that you could share your burdens with? I met with a guy years ago. He went to a church, and he was struggling in his marriage. And he said, you know what, Mike? The leadership team within that church, you cannot... Tell people you're struggling, because the environment's very legalistic. They will judge you, because everybody outwardly has their act together. And listen, if you're honest with yourself and myself, we all struggle more than what we lead on. I'm not saying that you're living a double life, but let's be real in the body of Christ. We've got to pray for one another. And you know what I've learned? Pray on the spot. Because of social media, there's so many prayer requests. Don't go around saying, I'll pray for you, brother. I'll pray for you, sister. And you know you're not going to pray. So what I do is I pray on the spot right for them when I tell them I want to pray for them. Because I've had times where I said, yeah, I'll pray for you, brother. And then I forget. And then I see that person coming, and I went, shoot, I forgot to pray. I said, Lord, bless Bob in Jesus' name. And then they come up. I say, hey, Bob, I've been praying for you, brother. How you doing? You've done that before, haven't you? See, if you want to be prayer-driven, it's... It's not enough just to pray for your own needs. One of the marks of maturity is you are praying for other people on a regular basis, beyond just your family. You need to be praying for our president, our leaders. Yes, you need to pray for people in the opposite political party that you disagree with. You need to pray for their salvation, and you need to pray that God would bless them. In the church, we ought to be praying for our enemies, people we disagree with. We need to be praying for persecuted Christians. We need to be praying for this country that God would move in revival. And so if you want to be a prayer-driven Christian, pray for others. Seventhly, if you want to be a prayer-driven Christian, pray by living righteously. Pray by living righteously. Notice what he says in verse 16. He says, the effective, that word in the Greek means energy, The effective energetic prayer, notice the condition here of a what? Righteous man can accomplish much. Pray righteously if you're gonna be prayer driven. Notice it doesn't say that every Christian that prays, their prayers are gonna be effective and powerful. Why? Because the condition is you gotta be righteous. What do you mean? Well, first of all, you gotta be born again, you have to be righteous positionally. You have to be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and therefore be in right standing with God. But then you got to be living a righteous life. I didn't say a perfect life because if that was the case, God would never answer our prayers. But here's the issue. What is the bent of your life? What is the direction of your life? If the direction of your life is not to pursue Jesus… Jesus may not answer your prayer. That's why the Bible says God is not under obligation to answer the prayer of a non-believer. People often ask me that. Does God answer the prayer of a non-Christian? He can if He wants to. There are times where He does to reveal Himself, but God is not under obligation. And He's not under obligation to answer the prayer of a Christian that is not interested in following God. As James says, they're a double-minded person. You know what a double-minded person is in James? He mentions that in chapter 1 and chapter 4. It's a person that has one foot in the world, one foot in Christianity, and they vacillate back and forth. They're chameleons. They just want quick solutions to their problems. They're not interested in following God. God says that's the kind of person that's not going to get wisdom from God, that's not going to see their prayer answered. In Psalm 66, 18, it says this, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. What does he mean by regard? If I aim at it, if I choose it, and I'm in rebellion towards God, don't expect God to answer your prayers. The heavens are gonna be brass. God is under no obligation. And listen, you know what bothers me? And I'm not gonna name names here, but listen, within the political system today, you see a lot of religious talk going on among politicians And it drips with hypocrisy because many of these politicians try to use the Bible and they try to talk about Jesus and this, that, and the other. Listen, it's hypocrisy. You cannot be living an immoral life. You cannot be rejecting God in your behavior and yet talk about how God answers your prayers and everything else. I was talking again to a woman on the Internet We were having a discussion about certain things, and uh, somebody chimed in and said, well, what do you mean homosexuality is a sin? I said, well, look, God loves homosexuals, I said, but he hates their sin. I said, God loves adulterers, but he hates their sin. God loves liars, but he hates their sin. I tried to say, look, sin is sin. God hates all sin. Well, she said, who are you to judge me about my homosexuality? I said, I'm not judging you. I said, I'm simply telling you what God's word says. I have a close relationship to God, and I'm a lesbian. Who are you to tell me? Uh-uh. You can't be living in open rebellion. I don't, it's not just homosexuality. It's a lifestyle of sin and claim that you're connected to God. This is the false Christianity that's being propagated in America. Somehow I can live in rebellion and expect my prayers to be powerful. James says here, the energetic, effective prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. Not perfection, but the direction of your life is what will make your prayers powerful. So if you want to be a prayer-driven Christian, pray righteously. There's an eighth thing as we wind down. If you want to be prayer-driven Christian, pray by being persistent. Persistent. Pray by being persistent. Notice what he says in verse 17. He's going to use an example here of someone who prayed with power. Elijah, who's in the book of 1 Kings, he says Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He was human just like us. And notice what it says in verse 17. And he prayed earnestly. Here's what the Greek says. He prayed with prayer. He prayed with prayer. You know what that means? That means he prayed diligently, he prayed persistently, he prayed passionately, Elijah did not quit. If you want to read about the story, go to 1 Kings, I believe it's chapter 18. It talks about how the rain and the cloud didn't come right away, and Elijah kept praying. He wouldn't quit. If you want to be a prayer-driven Christian, pray persistently. You know what that means? That means as a lifestyle, keep praying. Don't give up on praying. Sometimes we all get discouraged. We say, God's not answering my prayer. Sometimes you feel like the heavens are brass. Am I just praying to the air? And so we can disengage in prayer because we feel like it's not effective. I've met with groups of pastors before and we've prayed for revival. We don't see revival coming. It's easy to get discouraged and say, you know what, I'm just gonna stop praying. No, pray persistently. And it also means if you're trusting God for something, keep hanging in there, keep trusting Him, don't quit, make sure it's according to His will. Sometimes we don't know if it's His will, and if we don't know, if it doesn't contradict Scripture, then keep asking. I remember before I went to seminary, we prayed for housing. I was living in Miami, Florida, and we prayed specifically for a three-bedroom place with two baths, because we had two girls at the time. And we kept praying every night, Laura and I, Lord, we're trusting You for this, we're trusting You for this. I came to visit up here, went to the seminary to look around, and we didn't know where we were traveling. We got off at the exit that said Lexington. I went to this uh, realtor's office, and I said, hey, we're looking for a place. Do you know? She says, we don't have anything, but here's a man that I think can help you. And on the piece of paper, it said, Reverend Bill Clower." He was the pastor at Chapel of Redemption, which is now Radius. So I called him up. And he said, man, he said, Mike, if you would have called me yesterday, he says, I just got rid of a three-bedroom, two-bath. So he says, I got a two-bedroom. He goes, you want to look at it tomorrow? I said, yeah. See, ye of little faith. Well, the next morning comes, he calls me, he says, Mike, you wouldn't believe what just happened. He said, I just got this morning a three-bedroom, two-bath, and that's the place we moved in. God took my weak faith, but because we kept praying and praying and praying, God answered. If you've been praying for your parents or a loved one or a child who's wayward, keep praying. Do not quit. There's a ninth way that you and I could be prayer driven, and that is pray by being bold. Pray by being bold. Notice what he says here Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He wasn't a super saint, he had feet of clay. He got tired, he got hungry, he got depressed. You remember when uh, Jezebel put him on the run? God accomplished great feats with him, sending fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice, lick up all the water. I mean, God demonstrated his power, but as soon as Jezebel said, I'm coming after you, you know what he did? He tucked his tail between his legs and he ran. He was a man just like us, but here's the point. He was bold. Pray boldly. We're no different than Elijah. Elijah's no different than us. When you come to the throne of God, make great requests. Ask God boldly. Come to his throne, Hebrews chapter 4 says, and make your requests known to God. Too often, we don't come to God with bold requests. Now, obviously, it has to be according to his will, it has to be in Jesus' name. You have to pray with the right motives, James 4 says, but come boldly. Jerry Falwell was like this. He was a man of faith, he prayed boldly. And God answered his prayer. Liberty Mountain, Before Liberty University was there, that mountain was owned by the government, and he said, that's the mountain that God's going to give me to start this school, and I won't take you through the details, but by boldness to God and by faith, he was able to acquire that property. He didn't have the money. I think it was $90,000 when he got it in that day, which was a lot of money, and God provided the money. Well, two more real quickly here as we wind down. Pray by being scriptural. Pray by being scriptural. Verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain. It did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Now, that's not mentioned in Kings. We get that from extra biblical literature, but that's how he prayed, and it didn't rain for three years and six months. There was a drought. There was a famine. You say, why? Why? Why did he pray this? Because idolatry was going on in the land with Ahab and Jezebel, and this was the judgment of God. Then he prayed again in verse 18, and the sky poured rain and the earth produced its fruit. You say, what do you mean by praying scripturally? How is is that inferred here? You know why Elijah prayed this prayer? Watch this. Are you listening? Say amen. Here's why. He was praying based on Deuteronomy. You know what Deuteronomy says, the blessings and the cursings of Deuteronomy chapter 28? He said, if my people fall into idolatry, I will send famine and drought to the land. He knew what the Word said, and based on the Word, he prayed. You see, our prayers, if we're going to be prayer-driven, need to be based on Scripture. They cannot violate the Scripture. So when you pray and ask God for something boldly, does it conform to the Scripture? And then finally, for this morning, if we're going to be prayer-driven we must pray compassionately. And this one is implied as he closes out James. He doesn't mention prayer, but no doubt this is mentioned implicitly. He says in verse 19, my brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth. Now, this could either be a Christian or it could be a non-Christian. You say, what do you mean a non-Christian? Someone who knows the truth, but they reject God? Or it could be a Christian that's wandering away from the truth. Someone should bring that person back. How do you bring that back? Prayer. You got to have compassion for people that have strayed. Whether it's a believer or whether it's somebody you're praying for who's not saved. He says, Remember this, verse 20, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover a multitude of sins. Now, if this is a non believer, you want to pray compassionately that God would save them. Why? Because if they don't get saved, they're going to experience eternal death. And when you pray and God affects change in their life and they come to Christ, guess what? God used your prayers to deliver them from death. If it is a Christian who has wandered from the truth, go to them, confront them in love, and the Bible says what? Pray for them. Call them back. Why? Because if they've strayed from the truth, they could be chastised by God greatly. The word death there could be physical as well. First Corinthians 5, remember the guy in the congregation that was sleeping with his stepmother? What happened? God killed him prematurely, took him home. So are you a prayer-driven Christian? I know I got a lot of work to do. I'm not where I should be. How about you? And let me just say this. We are living in times right now, we all know this, and we are at a tipping point. Let me say that again. We are at a tipping point in this country, and I promise you, brethren, if we do not pray, this nation is going to go down. It's already going down. We're at that tipping point. We are going to see, listen carefully, an implosion like we've never seen. We are going to see the culture turn on the church like we've never seen. And so starting next Sunday, we're going to pray in the cafe. Eight o'clock. 8:15, rather. It's going to be 20, 30 minutes of prayer. I am pleading with you, as John is as well. We need to be praying for our country. We are at a tipping point. So do you want to be a prayer-driven Christian? What do you need to do? Number one, pray when you are suffering. Number two, pray when you are sick. Number three, pray by praising God. Number four pray by trusting God. Number five, pray by confessing your sins. Number six, pray by interceding for others. Number seven, pray by living righteously. Number eight, pray by being persistent. Number nine, pray by being bold. And number 10, pray compassionately. Let's pray.